0: You're listening to the Sustainable Angler Podcast. I'm your host, Rick Crawford. Uh, Today's guest is Whitney Tilt from the American Fly Fishing Trade Association's Fisheries Fund. And Whitney has had a long career in conservation, and we talk about some of the lessons he's learned along the way. Uh, We talk about some of the threats that our fisheries face as well as a deeper dive into the Fisheries Fund. So, hope you enjoy. Support for the Sustainable Angler Podcast comes from Emerger Strategies. Emerger Strategies is a sustainable business consultancy that was founded in 2016 with the idea of using business as a tool to solve social and environmental problems in an effort to protect the planet that we love. For more information, visit EmergerStrategies.com. The Sustainable Angler is available anywhere you listen to podcasts and is now airing at, on Saturdays at 2 p.m. on Charleston's first and only community-supported radio station, Ohm Radio 96.3 FM. Thanks for listening and hope you enjoy this interview with Whitney Till.
1: From as long as I can remember, um, I was out in the fields, hunting, fishing, turning over rocks, um, asking questions, um, and uh, kind of growing up in the New England area, uh, but always from almost day one, kind of had this encouragement from my family to see if I could find, actually get paid to do what I loved. Um, And started years and years ago working for the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service as a refuge assistant, kind of a seasonal tech. And that's just kind of snowballed into both my um, graduate work and then, um, you know, moving into the Washington, D.C. area but a big guide stone for my um, kind of interest in fisheries and all was in the '70s. Um, my family uh, we moved and and picked up a cattle ranch in the uh, west side of the Tetons, and that was just wow. marvelous country to explore. Uh, learned a lot about the importance of private lands and focus on how they interact with our fisheries and wildlife. And so, you know, spent 17 years in Washington, DC with uh Audubon Society and then the National Fish and Wildlife Foundation. And then with two kids um, and the oldest heading for high school, we said, no, it's time to we didn't get them out. So we we moved to really I almost feel like back home, but back to the Rockies in Bozeman, Montana and um been doing interesting stuff ever since really focused in on a a lot of my background has been kind of getting in the middle between conflicts whether it's lower colorado river water or spotted owls or tigers so um really learning that it's the animals keep take pretty good care of themselves it's ourselves that we have to worry about so uh always been an avid fly fisherman Um, my grandfather in his little um house that he had as a fishing shack had a sign over the uh, door that said, contrary to popular belief, if you cut a worm fisherman in half, you don't get two worm fishermen. Um <laughs> though, of course I do all sorts of gear, but um, avid fly fisherman. Yeah. <laughs> well that that's awesome. Yeah. I I um
0: I can't imagine we were kind of chatting just a little bit bo- before, but I can't imagine what the, the Rockies um, were like in, in the 70s. And um, how how old were you when y'all when y'all moved out west?
1: Well, I was just starting kind of right in the middle of of college. I um, didn't really want to go to college, but that was the sort of thing you're supposed to do. And so I did as much as I could not to be in class uh, from being in Africa to uh, the Tetons. So I would say I was, you know, 18, 19 yeah. um, and had been brought up doing chores every morning and all on kind of a farm like atmosphere in, atmosphere in Connecticut, but suddenly um, learning the ways and means of around cattle and horses, much more horse work. Than I had ever done before. And you know, the people and the of course the environment. Um you know, walking out the door every morning looking at the Grand Tetons uh from the <laughs> West, which is the side they were named from.
0: Yeah. Uh, it's just <laughs> I pretty know good that. stuff.
1: Yeah. Yeah, the the three Tetons. Okay. Three Tetons. Um, um you know.
0: that's really cool. Um, and so for me personally, I I um learned how to fly fish when I moved out west. I had not fly fish previous to that. Was that something th- that you picked up on when you moved out there or, or were you like grew up fly fishing your whole life?
1: Oh my um my grandmother and grandfather were were avid fishermen and I was lucky enough actually to spend time on the lever little beaver hip hill um in you know the towns of Livingston and Roscoe and all that growing up and um you know so uh it was pretty much fly fishing um was the way to do it and then obviously salt water a lot of uh, surf casting and and the like but always fly fishing from day one still learning still can't pretend I know what the hell I'm doing I have a great time proving that to myself (laughs) well I think that's something that
0: every fly angler can can relate to it's it's a you never stop learning and, uh, you never perfect it. And, uh, so I, that's very relatable. Um, I remind myself of that every time I go out and fish.
1: <laughs> and if you don't, you'll be reminded.
0: of. Yeah. Stuff. Yeah. 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 That's probably the better way to say it. I, I am reminded, uh, every time I go, but, um, so, you've had this extensive career and, and correct me if I'm wrong, but I mean, really focused on conservation. And I'm curious to know maybe who, who are some of your heroes that you looked up to from a conservation Like, how, how did you get into it? Like, who were your heroes? And what was the, how did it all start there?
1: That's a good question. I had um, several, people uh, who were active in Audubon in a group called Rare. Um, and then starting, uh, he was the Assistant Secretary of the Interior, Nathaniel Reed, um, gave me kind of my, you know, gave me advice on, you know, jump in and you're going to start small and low and, and keep doing it. And was actually very fortunate to be able to kind of stay in The career. Um, I had many friends growing up who wanted to kind of make a career out of kind of fish and wildlife conservation and they got flushed out of the pocket you know when it comes time to actually have to pay rent and and all that. Uh, So I'm very fortunate to to do that and along the way just serendipitously finding remarkable people. But on that um, a couple of years ago I teach um, kind of a history of fish and wildlife conservation to a group out here called the Montana Master Hunters program and then also to a program being pioneered by uh, the Guide Association in Montana called CAST, uh, Guiding for the Future and kind of challenging myself to write a history of fish and wildlife conservation that obviously centers around the ones that would automatically come to mind the Grinnell's, Roosevelt's, Pinchot's. But really says, well, wait a minute, you know, the role of women, the role of indigenous tribes and all, too easily we we lose sight of how did the system of fish and wildlife come to be today and what are its strengths and what are its weaknesses? So, um, again, because I was able to um, work for some very great people in the Fish and Wildlife Service at the National Fish and Wildlife Foundation just when it was getting going. Um, and building that network of people that just inspire you, kind of day in and day out, um, <clears throat> you just have to be smart enough to listen to them. Yeah, and occasionally I was. <laughs> um,
0: wow, that's 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 super cool. Um, I I love that. And you were there from the beginning. I mean, it sounds like more or less. Um, and I would definitely read that book. I'll I, so, uh let us know if that ever.
1: Well, there are a lot of very good books, but this will (laughs) will be a much shorter read. But it's it's interesting because if we don't if we don't understand why we have the the laws and traditions and all around hunting and fishing and where they came from, what what are our chances to keep it to defend it? So you know the public trust doctrine and and how the states have primacy over wildlife and fisheries and where that begins and ends. Really, really important stuff for anyone who wants to help conserve our natural resources today. And that's where sooner or later that word climate change is going to come up. If we're going to be effective doing that, we really have to understand where our system of laws and traditions came from and then work within them or recognizing how we shoot ourselves in the foot. when we you know kind of make excuses for things that the, most of the public who does not hunt or fish look at and go that doesn't seem right it doesn't seem ethical it doesn't seem like it's non- frivolous or some of the other things that we pride ourselves as uh, anglers and and hunters to adhere to mm-hmm.
0: interesting and and um yeah we're we I was thinking if we should shift gears now but I but I have uh, I do have another question that I that I wanted to ask just because I've, I admire your your career and and commitment to protecting what you love what what would you say maybe were um I don't know if it's one lesson or what are some of the most important lessons you've learned in in your career um in, in conservation and kind of it seems like at the intersection of that and, and, and policy
1: well it's a it's a really good question and if I had better recall I could come up with several but I think one of the biggest aha moments um was when we were early on in the National Fish and wildlife Foundation and we had a board <clears throat> who really wanted just to, to get into dirt, buy land, restore land and whatnot. And then about 10 years into it, we did an analysis, talking with all our grantees and all about where we collectively had wins and where we didn't. And it really came so obvious that you can buy a piece of land or stretch a stretch of river or a piece of coastline. Um, and that's great, but it's not in a stasis. It's not, not going to stay that way forever. So that means it has to be managed. And management comes down to people. So where we had we being the conservation community and the folks, whether it's the Forest Service, the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service, where you had talented managers that understood the biopolitics of what their job was, then that land flourished. Where you had a kind of a signing ceremony, slapped a name on the property, and walked away, that land is is probably not achieving half it probably is maybe achieving less of a conservation output than when it was protected. So as much as we we need the, the pictures in our mind of our favorite streams and all, that's what sells us, motivates us to get involved. But if we don't invest in the people um, to actually be good managers and give them a, a decent budget to do it, um, you know, we we hate to see any of our public lands go back into, say, private ownership. But private lands are more vital to the preservation of biodiversity in this country than all the public lands together. And one of the greatest differences is when you own it, you care for it. Well, wow. so let me ask you a question. the question: Last time you went on private land, and say, got a white-tailed deer, or got a chance to fish a beautiful spring creek, or something. I'm willing to bet, especially if you wanted to get invited back, you thanked the landowner. Oh, absolutely. But when you think about it, the next, last time you are on the Forest Service or lands or National Forest or park and all that, I don't think we ever think about thanking the people who actually manage it. We say, well, it's public and therefore it's ours, but we don't think to really recognize the hard work that goes into it, you know,
0: yeah. A, a little bit of a meander there. But. No, I mean it's interesting to, to cause because you're right. I mean, you know, I, I was recently in uh eastern North Carolina and on, on a guy's private land and um we weren't we weren't bird hunting, but we were just kind of cruising around on his property and there were quail and you know, got done with the little cruise. I was like, yeah, thank you for you know showing me your your land is beautiful and um So yeah, it's a it's something that I've just never even never even crossed my mind to be honest.
1: No, and of course the East Coast is still predominantly private lands, whereas in the West, you know, up to um, forty. Well, depending on which state, you can go from anywhere from thirty to almost ninety percent of it is public land. And but you know those settlers who came out here. They didn't take the worst land and leave the best land for last they took the best water and best soils and that's where our fisheries and wildlife (laughs) depend on those so we have to always keep that in mind that we have to say thank you to the landowner and make sure we incentivize them to do good things
0: yep interesting well well let's um let's talk a little bit about in case there's listeners out there who are not familiar with the AFTA Fisheries Fund, um, and maybe could you just give us a, a description and, and sort of what y'all are, are are working on?
1: Well, honestly, it starts with AFTA. So as the American Fly Fishing Trade Association, that is the association that's representing all the folks that are involved in the fly fishing industry. <clears throat> and... I don't know how much we can differentiate ourselves from other industries, but I think anybody who's in this industry or dedicated to fly fishing recognizes a strong connection to if we don't protect the resource, we don't have anything to do. Um, So it would be quite natural that a trade association like AFTA would have really two pillars. One is protecting the trade like any traditional trade association, but the other is stewardship. Mm-hmm. You know, the conservation of the resource. So um, beginning, I think in 2015, they established um, the AFTA Fisheries Fund to really set up as a conservation arm of AFTA. And that really worked under the, the dedicated volunteers of AFTA to really give out grants to small um, grants out to people doing great things, whether it's an education or a restoration Often these grants were were um, kind of kicker grants that would be help launch these projects into something bigger. Um, and then, with the support of the Packard Foundation, AFTA got the chance to um, you know see if they could bring on really doubling the, the staff size of AFTA. and I was brought on uh, two plus years ago to to really. Um, you know, take a run at getting this taking the fisheries fund from kind of an internal voluntary ad hoc part of AFTA to much more of a dedicated arm of AFTA's interest in protecting the resource. That's really cool. Um
0: and I was I, I'm familiar with, with the fisheries fund, but um you know on on y'all's website, which I was it's been on there for, for a while, but, um, and, and we knew we would get to this, but, um, you know, there's, there's lots of threats, right, to, to our fisheries. Um, and it's everything from, you know, stormwater runoff and pesticide use and uh, just all sorts of things. I was actually listening to uh, Tom Rosenbauer's podcast earlier today about mayflies and the anyway that's pretty fascinating um about that decline and, and how that's all in, in, interconnected but one of the one of the things that that we know is a is a significant driver um and and threat is is climate change um and there's a number of of ways that climate change affects our fish and um but I, I was curious to hear your your take on some of this and 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 what other threats are out there that are that are affecting our our fisheries and and how the fisheries fund is is working to be part of the the solution
1: well you know it's 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 interesting and i would be able to defend the say the biology of the black-footed ferret which is the animal uh uh, taxidermy behind me um I do have a permit for it. Um, <laughs> then, then they really try to tackle, you know, the, say the sins of climate change. But the the operative word in climate change is change. So you think of how much time we spend getting wrapped around the axle on whose fault it is, uh, what percentage my little change would be compared to, say, the production of cement or, you know, the EV, electric vehicles or whatnot Um, but that's unless you really want to beat yourself over the head that's that's not a really practical um, approach because it makes it's a practical approach if you don't want anything to done because if it's so big if my little thing has to be weighed against what china and india Um, need to change, then it's really easy for me to go back and get in my Barker lounger and and have another beer. (laughs) But if we take it from, you know, so what we're really focused on is is engaging the angler to do something. Mm -hmm. And I would say that something is take stock of what you're doing now and that something now would be what your personal commitment is. Are you committed helping volunteering and with your resources are you helping organizations that are doing good things on the ground and are you making your voice heard in how you vote and how you get contact your whether it's your county commissioners your state legislators or your national representatives if you take a a stock of what you're doing then what we're really trying to activate is okay we got to pick up our game Um, so we all have, should have, and I know you featured some, people are out there kicking butt and taking names. Um, and what we need to do is spread that like a virus, make it the new COVID, um, but a COVID we want to catch. Um, so then it's like, okay, so for instance, our tomorrow's fish, um, effort is focused on really trying to take the huge amount of science and and factoids out there and condense it down into something that's readable mm-hmm. and keep that updated. And then the part we're building more and more on now is, okay, how do we activate you? So now you have a basic understanding. So you want to know the issues? Go to Tomorrow's Fish, and I think, think you can sum them up as um, water. We have it warming. We have it rising, and we often have it disappearing. Ah, oh, there it is. For fisheries and climate change, you'd, you'd be hard to to break out of those that that triangle. Mm-hmm. So we know we have um, rising sea level, and there's still people who doubt that. And From it's hard. <laughs> we were, we just there there yeah, last fall. That's right, A beautiful spot. Um, yeah. So I mean, you don't have to be told when you things that over the course of 20 years you see, that high tide seems like it's already, you know, a lunar tide and yeah. yet, so we know that that's happening. We know that the water is warming. It's moving entire stocks of fish in the marine environment to new locales. So they, they don't have any mountains or valleys or rivers to cross. They just go where the water and the prey is. So we're seeing entire fisheries move Mostly northward, we're seeing that in the mountains where we're seeing plant types and all climbing up elevation because for every elevation, I say I think it's a hundred feet up, you're going like a thousand miles north oh wow so the so the atmosphere of ice and cold and and moisture all is about the same, say at nine thousand feet as you'd find out you know uh two thousand miles north of us so. We know that those as that warms, critters have to find new homes. Very few organisms, including ourselves, can tolerate much of a change in things like temperature. And, and obviously that then affects what we eat. So you have that. And then obviously for trout fishermen in the West and, and elsewhere, often you have water that's either being diverted for other use, that you mentioned, you know, contaminants and pesticides, we know, um, you know, we know the Great Stone Dam on the um, Merrimack in Massachusetts, uh, one of the first full dams built across to provide power for the textile industries. That dam's still there. Well, um, Thoreau wrote about, you know, who. Uh, who hears the fishes when they cry? Because he would sit and watch the shad and the salmon ba- banging their heads against an wall stone wall. Um, and so, you know, even back in the 1860s uh, and all, we had people talking about the issues of salmon and shad, but there was no, you know, structure for there, there were barely game laws, never mind inter- interstate cooperation and. And so it was all came down to um, people like Marsh, who wrote a report for Vermont, said, you know, the will is not here to do anything about it. Um, And this curmudgeon named Hornaday, who was a zookeeper and started the New York Zoological Society and saved the bison and all that. In his writing, you know, he talks about the war against apathy. You know, you know, gee, the world's going to hot. Ah, you know, how's my tie? So we face that here today that I think our job is to try to get everybody to do something more mm-hmm. within their means, within their interests. You know, some people want to get out and, and, you know, count count mayflies. I mean, you won't find our aquatics or like stoneflies and mayflies you won't find a better indicator of, you know, what our water quality is doing. And they're extremely temperature sensitive. So, you know, getting out and doing something, um, making it uh, when someone in the legislature has courage to stand up and do something on behalf of our fisheries. And so climate change to us, um, if 50, that may be too far, if 30 years ago, We've impaneled a group of scientists, the best we could find, say, what do we need to do to conserve our fisheries and make abundant and healthy fisheries a thing of the future? They would lay out a number of things. Has climate change changed any of that? No, but it it makes it more urgent. It's compressed the amount of time we have to do something about it. So our effort at the Fisheries Fund is... How can we develop ways to energize the angling community through, especially the fly fishing industry, to get people out kicking ass and taking names responsibly? And this, by the way, has no nothing to do with what color tie you wear at a political dimension, because it really, you know, it really doesn't care what your political leanings are. And we're we're lucky in that, you know, fly fishing and and angling overall. I don't know if anyone's ever tried to parse out. I'm sure someone has, you know, how many Republicans and how many Democrats and how many independents. But we are a very bipartisan group when it comes to our love of fishing. So take advantage of that. But the other piece of this. Rick, is it's got to be doable.
0: Yeah.
1: You know, it's got to be something you can sit to yourself. I could do that. I can join the local crowd unlimited chapter and help them, you know, um, you know, dealing with, like out here our way, we've had some terrific floods this past summer, made national news. You know, there's a lot of repairs and all that have to be done. We have, after wildfires, we have the same thing where you have these huge mudslides and, you know, that then silts up the stream, makes it shallower, makes it more susceptible to warming up. There's less substrate for, So climate change for us means we have to create habitats that are more resilient give fisheries a place to hide, to feed, you know, as you have these ebbs and flows because climate change is not in one direction. Right. That's the other thing. Some of us are suffering some of the coldest, wettest, you know, snowiest, you know, California as, as an example. So it's not all just heat waves. It's, it's massive storms and all that. So, we are looking, and and we excuse the good pronunciation, but we ain't got this figured out quite yet. So, we're yeah. we're really trying to build the 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 so what side of it. Why should we care? And then really get out to people. What can you do about it? How do you activate them?
0: Yeah, yeah. Because I think I think that that's the. um that's what makes the difference, right? Because actually taking action is it feels good. You you're 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 not as you're not on a, a passerby. You're you're now engaged and taking action and um and, and and it could be climate change, it could be anything. Any anytime you decide to to do something positive and and you believe in it, it's gonna make you feel good. Um, and you're going to want yeah. to do more of it, I think, in my opinion.
1: Yeah. What's that wonderful, um, ham and eggs, you know, the, the chicken is interested, but the, the pig is committed. Yeah. <laughs> um, and that difference of when you actually do get involved in, in our political system, um, you can do all the and moaning you want. Um, and, and our representatives don't have to listen to you until you make it, Enough of an interest that with enough people that he or she has to say, well, I better pay attention to this because my constituency cares. Yeah. Um and um, and plus the other thing that if you talk to anyone who's been you say part of a Trout Unlimited cleanup or something, they have a really good time because you're mm-hmm. you're in a community of like interest. You know, you're at the half the time I've been on, you might be freezing your rear end off, your hands serve you a little bit. But you're having a good time and you have a sense of accomplishment when you planted, you know, 3,000 willow, Um, you know, one's got the hydro hose and the others, three people have all the saplings and you're just, or the cuttings and you're just slamming them in there. And you come back five years from now, you say, well, I I might have really done something. So, and that's just one way. I mean, that getting out in, in the stream and all is, is, you know, just one way. and there's so much, you know, as you know, Rick, from, you know, coalition building, I mean, Protect Our Winners is a group that very concerned about keeping snow where snow belongs. Well, where do our rivers start from? Right. And if you're in coastal environments and an estuary, where's an estuary without its freshwater inflow? And then we know that the vast majority of commercially important fisheries, recreationally important fisheries, have a direct link to estuaries. So all of a sudden you could be, if you're a skier and you're concerned about snowfall, say in the southern Colorado Rockies, and you feel very far away from, say, the flats of of Charleston chasing redfish, but it ain't hard to get the two connected because it is about water that's running downhill.
0: Yeah, you know, it, and it's interesting the um I I just saw this recently that there's there's not a lot of snow in the Alps this year. And so this will end up probably being an unfortunate case study of if we don't if we don't do things to mitigate climate change and to um adapt to climate change to be more resilient and uh that this potentially is the future because this summer in the swiss alps um what's that going to do for the trout fishing it's probably not going to be very very good for uh depending on how much they contribute to the economy i have no idea but just as a right. a, a thought that that popped in my head as, as you were mentioned protect our winters
1: um well what? yeah it, look at look we don't have to go that far i mean look at the colorado basin is you know, where we're we're looking at Lake Mead, the whole Colorado River system reaching well, Lake Mead and Powell reaching levels they have not been at since the filling of those reservoirs began. And if there's any good news coming out of these atmospheric rivers that have been flowing through us recently out there, it is helping, you know, fill that system. But you know, it's just up and down. It's crazy. And that's where climate change is really it's got a sense of humor that let's see how extreme we can go up and down. So it's, it's, it's like a yo-yo when it comes to, uh, snowfall. We've had, you know, we had more snow in December here in Bozeman, Montana, than we've had in a long time and celebrated the day, two days before Christmas with some nice, you know, minus 30 degree weather. So, you know, we're used to the cold and all, but we don't normally see it quite, that early, and yet now it's, you know, we haven't seen snow for a while, so it's, there's no such thing as, so actually if we, let's take what happened in the Yellowstone this summer. So that was an atmospheric river that triggered it, but before that, we had had, coming into the new year, 2022, we had a really dismal snowfall, and we had it, but it wasn't anywhere near, I think it was like, maybe 70% of normal, and then in, you know, uh, March, April, May, we got quite a bit of snow, especially up high. We'll get it here, but it'll disappear. And so we had all this late snow and then it was starting to get warm. And so now think of that. If you've ever been in snow where every time you go through it, you post hole to the bottom and your boot fills with water. So we got about 14 inches of that hanging up high, water equivalent 14 inches. And then three inches of rain falls. So that water released that snow and the whole mass came downhill. So it was more of a dam break, mm-hmm. really, than it was a flood. So the hydrograph goes up on the Yellowstone. It goes up to the previous records that were in the 90s and then, I think, 1909. It goes up well above that and then peaks. And luckily, it then follows the same retreat down if it had stayed up there higher um longer we would have really lost something but that was that was a events that we see all the time but that combination of the perfect storm where you had the atmospheric river after late snows earlier snows would have been more compact over time um and they would have been more typical of what we have Mm -hmm. so you know we got Tremendous damage, of course, to the north uh, eastern corner of, of the park. And then, of course, the Gardner and, and the Yellowstone River did all sorts of damage to the northern entrance of the park. And then, you know, what it did through the Paradise Valley and all was, was you know, been well documented, but also Red Lodge. And so is that that was characterized as a 500 to 1,000 year event. Well, you know what? That means nothing nowadays because that's looking backwards at what the norm was. How often could right. we expect to have that? You've heard it with hurricanes and the like. Well, you know what now is just as likely it will happen again next year as not happened. So at best, it's a hundred year frequency event. But I think even that um, thumbs it nose at just how extreme climate change is 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 causing it's throwing variables into the picture that we're just not used to seeing there is no we don't know what normal is right now
0: yeah yeah it's hard to even think about what a normal baseline is these days because it's i mean it's 72 degrees right now in charleston i mean it's nice uh, <laughs> <laughs> but that's not normal for for I mean you know we don't have, we don't have like freezing cold winters all the time but I'm, I I grew up in Savannah and um yeah Januarys were not in the 70s that's for sure and you know you you mentioned earlier you know uh like shifting stocks like people are starting to catch snook in Savannah and Charleston and which is crazy
1: yeah.
0: um and so uh Perhaps a benefit. Um, <laughs> one, 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 one might argue, but um, all of that is to say, because you know, with the just the the nature of my business and and um, everything that you know, we talk about climate change a lot, and it can kind of get to you after a while, where you're like, "God, is there any?" hope, like what, what can we do? And I think that's the important part of the fisheries fund, the, the activate component. It's like, what can we do? It's like, okay, this is what you can do and, and, and what you should do. Um, and so I'm, I'm, I'm wondering what are some of the things that, I don't know, that either give you hope or that you have, um, share some uh, a success story or something along those lines, because I think everyone needs to hear those things. Like it's, you know, like for, um, you know, I, I think it's great when uh, 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 just, just relatable to, 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 what I do, you know, you know, a business can take action if they measure and reduce their, their carbon footprint. That's a, that's an action of business could take. Right. And that. Feels good. That gives me hope, and I'm wondering with the with everything that the fisheries fund does, what what is it that that gives you hope when you're able to, to at the end of the day look back on it and say like, hey, this is we're we might be able to make it if we if, if we go up this path.
1: Well, it's a really good question because you know what gives me hope is probably totally irrational to somebody else. I mean. Um, it, having that kind of hope is what gets me out of bed. I'm not, um, I wouldn't, unfortunately, I don't think I'll ever work myself out of a job in fish and wildlife conservation. Cause I think we do have a lot in front of us, yeah. but I do see it in, um, stories I hear from like Benny Blanco, when he's got kids around him who really want to emulate better behavior and more responsible behavior. Um, I see it when I see fishing guides doing everything from getting plastic out of their boats to um, fishing barbless, to, to going to the extent of threatening their tip, threatening doing actions that might threaten their tip. Right. By getting a client in front of the boat to recognize, listen, you know, you fly fish around the world, you better understand that, you know, you need to get engaged. Um, that may not be what that that person wants to know, what to change to so they can catch another fish. Um, but there are guides out there that are saying, you know, it's not about how many fish we hook. It's you know, it's about the resource. Um, and so that all is hopeful because again, it it goes back to you know what we personally care about, why we fish, or what our favorite fishing hole looks like, and you know i can honestly say that you know a lot of the rivers like the yellowstone like the madison um like the the beaver kill these rivers are have not gone the way of many because people have given a dam mm-hmm. uh, maybe that's the wrong word swear word to use because we don't want them to have a dam but um <laughs> you know and and so we had that time and time again i mean tu's home waters efforts mm-hmm. um what uh you know, so many of these different organizations are achieving, you know, what um Moonfish and Tarpon Trust down in the Florida Keys, captains for clean water out there kicking ass. Yeah. That's there's hope there. Yeah. And you look at something like a captains, you look at what maybe will 2023 please be the year we put Bristol Bay and Pebble Mine to bed. Unbuilt, it's a good hope unbuilt, to do right. it, but yeah, at the forefront of that effort has been the tribes. The commercial fishermen and the recreational fishermen. It's unbelievable that we even have to have this conversation given you know so many times we go into battle and in conservation and we don't have nearly the kind of economic arguments and all that that um Bristol Bay has to to you know kibosh pebble. We're still fighting it but it gives me hope. Um I mean while you marvel at why that much energy has to be expended for something so obvious because we hope that there are people in there and it's a diverse coalition. It's not just a bunch of, you know, you know, older white guys like me, it's, you know, very diverse. So that's what, that's where we draw hope from. And there's not just in those examples, there's not, if you've got a favorite fishing hole or a favorite. So the other thing that's going on with these habitats, we want to make them resilient so that it provides a greater bandwidth to support the environmental services they provide Mm -hmm. but we also they many of these systems sequester carbon meaning they're going to take that carbon and put it into the roots they're going to put it in um out of the atmosphere and they're not going to necessarily be released um you know for instance forests are great sequestering carbon but you better make sure that tree doesn't burn right uh, you know at least when it's put into a wood frame building so but all these actions that are really twofold that helps protect the environmental services we depend on, like clean water, fish and wildlife. But then they also do help, you know, they're not the sole answer, but they help sequester or reduce carbon outputs that in turn help this bigger picture of how do we reduce our carbon loading. Yeah. So that there's hope there. Yeah. That's where you find inspiration. And every single one of them has a name behind it, a face. Many have several faces. But again, that goes back to every time we've kicked ass in conservation, we might remember, you know, why we have that refuge, why we have that park. You know, the Everglades has an, a face behind it. It's Marjorie Sonum Douglas. Yeah. Who used the power of the pen. I mean, the Hawk Mountain Sanctuary has Rosalie Edge um you know every single one of these efforts has people behind it who really gave a you know what
0: yeah well i think it it, you know it boils down to people protect what they love and if they're uh passionate about it and can inspire others to take action then i think that's part of uh part of the solution right and and i'm i think there needs to be a kick ass for conservation bumper sticker uh coming out soon uh yeah let's
1: do it <laughs>
0: yeah uh, <laughs> um all right well before we we're, we're before we uh end in the interview whitney uh because we're we are talking about fishing and, and i and i appreciate that uh i love that um message of hope and you know i think part of that is as is, is us as uh fly anglers and as um perhaps afta industry members it, it, it's 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 working together um to 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 solve some of these these problems and um i really like the uh I love what the fisheries fund is doing and um, so yeah so thank you for 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 your time and for for everything you're that you're doing at the fisheries fund but I would be remiss since we're here because I always want to try and pick up a little a, a few tips <laughs>
1: you you're, might part the wrong spot <laughs> yeah
0: <laughs> you're uh, you're stranded in, in in the middle of uh, Montana and you've only got one fly to to survive with What, what what's it got to be you're only going to give me one
1: um, and I'm thinking back to a forester I used to work with who talked about his early days uh, fighting fire. He had a hat that he had a piece of leader around with one fly, and that was an Adams. Yeah. Um, and I would update that Adams to a purple haze. Okay. Um, and we'd have to fight about whether it was. I'd probably have to be a 16 to try to hold on to it, but often you need to have an 18 as well. But I would I would go with the purple haze okay
0: all right everyone write that down uh <laughs> that, that, that's your go go to fly um so but but in all uh, sincerity I, I i appreciate uh everything you're doing whitney and um thank you and i appreciate your time i'm always uh I learned so much doing these, which is one of the reasons I like doing these podcasts. Is, and so, um, so thank, thank you for sharing your your knowledge with us.
1: Yeah, well, thanks. It was great just uh, having the conversation with you, and you're really good at just kind of well, I guess letting me talk. But <laughs> I really appreciate it. Hey everyone, uh, thanks
0: for tuning in. Uh, for additional articles and information and in past episodes, you can visit thesustainableangler.com. Also super excited uh, to now be airing the Sustainable Angler Saturdays at 2 p.m. on Charleston's first and only community-supported radio station. Uh, that's Ohm Radio 96.3 FM.